In the 1999 film The Matrix, you might remember Morpheus offers Neo a choice of a red pill and a blue pill. This doesn't stand for the political parties, by the way, but isn't that interesting? All right? Morpheus, as cool as he is, looks at Neo and says, this is your last chance. After this, there's no turning back. Take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed. and You go on living your life however you want to. Take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland, and I will show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. But remember, all I'm offering you is the truth. Nothing more. Well, this week I spent the whole week in Omaha with a, a bunch of 25-year-olds walking with them through the narrative of that which is 1 Samuel. Um, it was such a privilege to be able to do that and to go there and to go through a book. You know, you hear studying the, the narrative of the Old Testament in 1 Samuel, you kind of go, huh, I wonder how that's going to be. But it's like taking the red pill. It just, just gets deeper and deeper, and the richness of God's Word just jumps off the page as you truly look at it. The Bible never gets boring, ladies and gentlemen. If you're bored of the Bible, you're not reading it, okay? And so we're, today, because I had to study it all week, you're the beneficiaries of such labor. It's not a Christ the King message or a Thanksgiving message, but there's elements of Thanksgiving in it, and there's elements of our Lord Jesus Christ in it. So I encourage you, and I hope you'll open up with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 20. Up to this point in 1 Samuel, King Saul has been the appointed king by the Lord. He is the anointed king, although he warned the people. And he told Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. Give him a king. And so they gave him, he gave them King Saul. And the defining characteristic of Saul's life with the Lord is half-hearted obedience. And ladies and gentlemen, you can only look at the life of Saul. You can also look at every other character within throughout the scriptures. If you have half-hearted obedience, you don't have obedience at all. And so God removes the anointing from Saul and gives it to David, the teenager, the son of Jesse. It's a beautiful story, but it's one wrought with peril for young David. And so in chapter 18, because Saul's son Jonathan and David are such good friends, Jonathan recognizes David's kingship and literally takes off his princely armor and gives it to David as a symbol is I recognize you as my future king and in chapter 19 if you flip back one chapter you will see that Saul while David is ministering to him playing the lyre can you imagine you're standing there you're gifted at guitar for example which is a modern day lyre if you will and you're ministering, playing softly for the king, and he just gets so enraged with you that he picks up his spear and hucks it at you. You see it coming, you turn, it comes by, boom, right against the wall. Because that's what the text says, Saul tried to pin David against the wall. Saul did what any red-blooded young man would do, run. 
Because this guy's crazy. This guy's crazy. And so he got out of there, and that's where we begin chapter 20. And what we see in this text is not only relevant for David and Jonathan's relationship and lives, it's, it's relevant for ours. Because what we see is the covenant questioned between them. The covenant allegiance tested and the covenant allegiance reaffirmed. That's what we're going to see. Covenant questioned, covenant allegiance tested, and covenant allegiance reaffirmed. First, we must see that covenant is questioned. Now, put yourself in David's shoes. The prophet Samuel has anointed you. You know you're going to be king, but you're probably 16 years old, and you're not quite sure how this is all going to work out. Okay? You're just on the run right now. And your friend comes to you, okay, and says, ah, that's just dad. You don't have to worry about it. But look at verse 1. What does David say to Jonathan? What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan takes chapter 2 and goes, it's not so. <laughs> it's not the way it is. You know, have you checked out your, your dining room wall? There's a spear stuck in there. Yeah, it has. All right? There is drama here, my friends. And their friendship, their deep love friendship, wrought in battle together and growing up together and being part of the court together is now being tested. And David, if he continues just tries to get Jonathan to realize this is a serious situation, and he goes so far as to say in verse 8, look, don't take me to your father. I'm not going. Kill me yourself. Here I am. Cut off my head. Because this is reality, Jonathan. I need you to believe me. And so what does Jonathan do to reassure him in the covenant that between them and the Lord being questioned. Verse 16, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Don't go over that text. All right? Jonathan is reaffirming the covenant that's now being questioned to David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Who's David's fierce enemy right now? Jonathan's father. May the Lord take vengeance on his enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Isn't that beautiful? This is a blood brother understanding of what it means to be brothers in the Lord together in David is questioning Jonathan's commitment, and Jonathan makes that covenant with David that it's going to be all right. We're going to have a plan here. My friends, it's perfectly normal experience in our lives to have questions and doubts about the reality of the love of the Lord. And it's also a very good biblical experience to hold one another to the covenant that we profess among one another, that we say every week in the creed that we say every time a baby is baptized, our pattern of discipleship. We have every right to speak the truth in love to one another, as these two are doing. Because that's what happens 
in the true church. If nobody ever talks to us, you know, we miss coming to the assembly for six months, there's a problem among us. You know, we call one another, as C.S. Lewis would say, further up and further in, in the Lord. Because what we are in the one true church is really a learning community. And when you have doubts about the Lord, you don't hide them to yourself. Everybody has doubts at times in their lives. How can we know this is true? That's a good question. Let's, let's dig in. But as, our, as Billy Graham once said, if I have a problem with the Lord, I take it to the Lord. Because God's word can be trusted. And what is formed in doing so is a learning community, a discipling community, because that's what it means to be a learner, a disciple. The problem in America, quite frankly, is that so many people in our culture, you have the doubters over here who hang around nobody else but doubters and skeptics, and so they hang out over here expressing their doubts, and they don't learn a thing but to remain in their doubts. And you have the believers over here hanging around nobody but believers, and therefore they express their belief and are never sharpened in that belief. And I believe as we've planted this church, you know it's been five years ago, it's our five-year anniversary as Christ Church West Shore, we're still standing. You know, thank be, thanks be to God, you know. But that's what we are. We're a learning community where our doubts and, and fears and, and hopes can all be confessed to one another and we hold one another accountable to it. Just like David saying, hey, this is real. This situation's really happening, Jonathan, and he's holding Jonathan accountable. We too can hold each other accountable to walk in the Lord together because that's what the church is, a learning community. Secondly, what we see is the covenant allegiance is tested. So Jonathan begins to concoct a plan, an intelligence plan, so that David can know a way forward. He's eager, there's one or two directions. He's going to go off into the wilderness outside of Nioth, or he's going to come back to the kingdom. And so he concocts his plan that he's going to shoot the arrows as a signal, and he's going to send a boy to chase the arrows. I need one of those guys to chase my arrows for me. Because you know, I never hit the target. And so, so you shoot the arrows, and then if he hears, and David's going to be hiding over behind the rock, and if he tells the boy... Go over to the right, there's some more arrows over there. David knows it's safe to go back. But if he says, keep going, there's some arrows beyond you, David knows that it's not safe to go back and there's something wrong with Saul. And so it's tested, and look at verse 33 for me. But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put him to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. See, the reality is that this allegiance that Jonathan has to David through their relationship and their common trust in the Lord together, this plan has revealed that Saul now hurled a spear at his own son. Can you imagine? Tries to kill him. Calls his mother a son of a you-know-what. 
in the Hebrew. That's what it is. It's an awful way to speak to your children, especially your growing young men. You never call your wife such a word and call him such a word. And so Jonathan rises from the table in the Hebrew with a fierce anger. This is, he is so ticked he's almost out of control. He can't believe that this is his father. And so what he does, he, he carries out the plan. Because he now recognizes that his allegiance, when he laid his armor at the feet of David, David's the king, not dad. And our allegiance to the Lord, as you well know, in our postmodern culture is tested at times as well, is it not? Where we live, where we work, and we play, there's people who will look at us at times as if we're from another planet. That is normal. We, be, we believe what we believe. It will be questioned, tested to reveal whether it's a reality in our life. And so, like this test, our covenant with the Lord and with one another will be tested at times. It's normal. That's why being the church is so important. Gathering together under the authority of God's word and not just on Sundays, but in groups, doing life together as the Bible describes, not as our grandparents described. My grandparents' era, the Bible was respected, but it wasn't heeded. You know, my, my grandparents didn't teach either of my parents the true faith. Therefore, my parents didn't come to faith till after I came a Christian. And the point is, we can hold one another accountable because the arrows are God's word. The testing is the true reality of God's word in our lives. And if it lines up, we can walk into the reality of it. And if not... We can shine the light into the darkness. And so you have the covenant allegiance is tested, and then you have the covenant allegiance reaffirmed as Jonathan arrives back. And don't, once again, don't miss the drama. Verse 41, and as soon as the boy had gone, the boy doesn't know a thing. Isn't that great? Great plan. Only Jonathan and David know what's going on here. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from behind the stone heap, and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. David bowed to Jonathan. Don't miss that. The king bows out of gratitude that Jonathan is keeping him safe. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Because when David's sitting there behind the stone heap, there's no watches. There's no cell phones with their timers going. He has no idea how long, when it's going to take Jonathan to come back. For all he knows, Jonathan might betray him and send Saul's forces to get him. Because he can say, I know where David is. But Jonathan had chosen to recognize David as the king even as he went back into the court of his father. Did you catch that? They parted ways. Well, where did Jonathan go? Back home. 
And it's going to affect every relationship Jonathan has in court because he is going to recognize David as the one true king. Because Jonathan's identity is with the Lord. It's not as the son of King Saul. It's not even as David's follower. It's first as a subject of the one true king, the Lord. And whenever we place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him as such obedience, there will be times in our lives just like Saul who won't understand. They won't get it. I hope you heard the gospel reading that Sean led us in this morning. Jesus came to give his people peace, but in this world, when we profess faith in Christ, they're not going to get it. And you might have a division. Husband, wife, father, mother, brother, sister, employer, employee. This is normal part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. But to follow Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind as we pray every week, as we hear every week, is where the true peace will be found. Because there is one who is separated from his father ultimately. Jesus came and died upon the cross for our sake. He lived the perfect life that we could never live and died the death we deserve to die so that we can have this abundant life. And when we gaze upon the cross of his great love for us, when you see that love, it changes everything. <laughs> you find your life being reprioritized because Jonathan had to reprioritize. Jonathan had to say, all right, I'm walking back into court. How's my life going to be different now with what I know? And we can be the blessings in our world because our identity is in Jesus Christ. It's not in fill in the blank. It's not in what our culture says to be a good parent or a good grandparent. It's not in what our culture says what makes a good employee. It's not in what our culture says to be a good husband and a good wife. Because if we follow the ways of the world, ultimately it's an unsatisfying false glory. For example, your work. Is your work ethic to advance the idea of what I'm in this for me? That I can advance as far as I need to go. Because if it is, that's an idol of our expressive individualistic culture and it's not of God it's an idol that will crush you it will never satisfy you and it's such a lonely place to be but if your work ethic as you go back to work tomorrow morning is I'm gonna love the Lord with all my heart soul mind and strength and I'm gonna love my co-workers even those who are unlovable <laughs> right you got them. I see your faces. Right? Because that's what a changed life does. It's, it's, it's a reprioritized life, and that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And not just in our workplace, but in our neighborhood, and where we hang out, and where we play. And when you're in a relationship with the Lord, with the one you adore, who adores you, through his saving love that gives you that stable new identity, that fully satisfies, when you have that identity, it's absolutely rock solid. It can never change because of his love for you on the cross.
and you can never lose. How do you know you have that? Well, first of all, are you finding your life reprioritizing unto the Lord's priorities for you as a disciple of the living God? And you find yourself loving the church. <laughs> Jesus said, all men will know this. This new commandment I give you is love one another as I have loved you. He's talking about the church. That you love people you don't have anything in common with. You know? All different kinds of interests, but you got the interest in Jesus Christ that makes all the difference in the world. And then you're able to love that, that real obnoxious Browns fan. <laughs> They're 0-10 for crying out loud. Stop talking about them. You love them? They're going to run the table. Just you watch. 0-16. Yeah, number one draft pick. All right. But that's the point. You can love them. You can love that quirky artist person who dresses really different because they love Jesus and you love Jesus and you can see their art with mature, loving eyes. And it's just, it's wonderful. Because in Jesus Christ, what you've been looking for in your career, what you've been looking for in your parenting, you're never going to get. But in Jesus Christ, you'll never lose your true identity. I want to encourage especially our young people, teenagers and college students. You know, this, this world will try to give you that it's identity. It's false. It's a lie. Follow the love of God. Gaze upon the cross and his love for you, dear young friends. Adults and parents, stop letting that soccer coach, that baseball coach, that travel hockey team, volleyball, tell you what's best for your kid. That league, 40 years from now, will be nothing more than a fond memory. What's done for Christ will last forever. And I want to encourage you. Yeah, you're going to miss some Sundays, but if you're going to miss the next three months, look that coach in the side. He's not going to be here. If the church had done that 20 years ago, no, there wouldn't be any games on Sundays. I was, I was blessed by... I prayed for good coaches, by the way. Pray for your coaches. I went up to them every hockey season and said, you know, these guys aren't going to be here on Sundays. And they worked with me, you know? And of course, the boys every now and then did. But what does it mean to live into the Sabbath? Don't let the culture tell you you have to have your kid in every single this activity, every single that activity. Deep breath. What they need the most is a loving father and mother guiding them in the love of the Lord in the ways they are wired. Train up a child in the way they should go. If you got that athlete, sure, play, but... They don't have to be, they're not going to the NFL. They're probably not going, all right? If they are, tell me, I want to see them play. I want to encourage you, don't let the culture tell you what it means to be a good parent. Older saints, you are the knees of this congregation. We need you. You're not old and worn out. You may feel it, and I'm right behind you. 
but you are my prayer warriors. Pray for us. I need you. I need your prayers even as a father now. My kids are walking through stuff that, that would just, I hear, they tell me things. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I talk to them every week. You never stop being your kids' parents, do you? You have wisdom and love for the Lord that you can give away. Give it. And I may come to you and say, help. And some, come alongside our, our younger parents who need some encouragement in the Lord. You have so much to give us. Because the world offers you a blue pill. Christ doesn't offer you a blue pill. He offers you his love upon the cross. And that's where your true identity walked in the covenant that you made back at your confirmation. That's where real life and full life is followed. It's time to choose. Pentecost is done after this week. We're going to Advent next week. Preparing for Christmas. Preparing for Christmas. Reminding ourselves that what we believe is not going to end here, that Jesus is coming again. Boy, what a great news. We have good news. And we've been prepared and equipped all Pentecost season. Now we're going to Christmas, where every single person in our culture wants in on. Most want in on Christmas, right? We got a gift for them. Let's pray that we choose well so that they would choose well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you that our story is being written within the story of the good news of the gospel. Here in our community where there are impoverished people, even in the suburbs here, CRS tells us there's 500 families that are served clothes and food and uh, all types of toiletry items, Lord. We live in a community where there's great suffering, where there's great greed and great pride. And there's broken families and broken homes. They, they pervade in our community. Lord, you're the one who says to us, I have come to give you life and have it to the full. And upon this, our five-year anniversary, Lord, we thank you over these past six months throughout this Pentecost season here at Christ Church. You've gathered us a people who are committed to more than just attending church but instead being the church across the West Shore, committed to not just gathering on Sunday as a Sunday morning, but to scatter as the church for the rest of the week. For we imagine ourselves to be a place that isn't primarily a place with programs, but a people with a purpose. We've learned that over five years. Pour out your Holy Spirit into us to be a group of people engaged in community, working together for the good of the West Shore, for the glory of who you are, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we're a church, that we're becoming that. Lord, may we follow you, because all you offer us is the truth. For you are the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the 1999 film The Matrix, Morpheus offers Neo a choice. He looks at him and says, this is your last chance. After this, there's no turning back. If you take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in bed, 
and you believe whatever you want. Or you can take the red pill. You can stay in Wonderland, and I'll show you how deep the rabbit hole will go. Remember, all I'm offering you is the truth, nothing more. Well, I went this week to the Simeon Trust workshop in Omaha, spending the week with a bunch of 25-year-olds, and I felt like I had taken a red pill. You know, uh, you know, it's really fun with vibrant young men who are hungry and passionate for the Lord and to see how the Lord's using them. I mean, these are great men shepherding their, their people well, and the Lord is doing a great work out in Omaha, Nebraska. I'll tell you, it's amazing to see what he's doing. And so, uh, you know, I bring you greetings from Christ Presbyterian Church in Fremont, Nebraska, where my good friend Kyle McClellan is the pastor. And it was just a wonderful time. Um, and so here we, we land back, and it's, you know, I was thinking earlier this week, well, it's Christ the King Sunday, where we wrap up Pentecost, declaring that Christ is our Lord. And it's also Thanksgiving Sunday, because, you know, obviously not everybody will be able to come to our Thanksgiving service this upcoming Wednesday. So we have a Thanksgiving theme, Sure. And I thought about, well, what am I going to preach on, given the fact that I'm spending all week in the book of 1 Samuel? And because David Helm assigned me 1 Samuel 20, that's what you're going to get. So I encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 20. And if you're visiting with us, you can find it in the back of your bulletin. Up to this point in Samuel, the whole narrative is pointing that David is going to be the king of Israel. Now, that's not the way it began. You might remember God was the true king of Israel, but yet God's people wanted a king like all these other nations around them. And Samuel said, the prophet, who this book has the name, says, you don't want a king. This is not going to end well for you people. And God speaks to Samuel and says, Samuel, give them a king, because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So Samuel obeys, and, and the Lord anoints, the Lord anoints Saul, king. He's good looking, he's tall, he looks the part. You know, you want him to be your king. But the greatest characteristics of Saul's life and his walk with the Lord is half obedience, which as you know, if you look throughout the whole counsel of the word of God, is no obedience whatsoever. He's half-hearted in everything. And so, God takes the mantle and the anointing off of him and gives it, in chapter 15, to David. 15-year-old, 16-year-old, warrior boy. The boy can fight because he wasn't scared of the eight and a half foot giant Goliath that the Philistines sent out. And so Israel likes this kid. He's all right by our measure. And the problem is, as chapter 18 occurs, after Saul is, is recognizing that there's a competition for him, David didn't ask for this. David was just anointed king by Samuel. He didn't ask for it at all. He just is beginning to walk into it. What does it mean to be Israel's king? But we had this king, Saul. His best friend, Jonathan, who he's fought with, who he's grown up with, Jonathan, in chapter 18, literally takes off his princely armor. 
and gives it to David in recognizing, friend, you're the king, not my father. I recognize you, and it's a powerful recognition. And so David and Jonathan had this close, intense, wonderful relationship as, as brothers, band of brothers is who they are. They love one another deeply. But in chapter 19, verse 11, if you read that in your Bibles, you'll see a very interesting phrase. Saul tried to pin David to the wall. David's ministry in the court was to play the lyre. So imagine you're a gifted musician like David was. You're playing your tailor guitar for the king to soothe him. And all of a sudden, the king picks up a spear, and you're thinking, is that a spear he's got? Yes, it does, and it comes right at you. You dodge, boom, it sticks in the wall. You do what any 16-year-old young man that's red-blooded, full of life, would do. Run! (laughs) And he got out of there. And that's where we find ourselves in the beginning of chapter 20. David... There's a spear sticking in the wall back home demonstrating that Saul is out to get him and then they come together. And so the the scene is painted in verse 1. Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan. Don't miss the drama here, friends. When you think the Bible is boring, you're not reading it. Okay? Yeah, there's there's some stuff in certain chronicle lists that get a little laborious, but, you know, put those aside. This is drama, because look what David says, and what we're going to see in this text are three very helpful aspects of our walk with the Lord. As the covenant is questioned, the covenant allegiance is tested, and the covenant allegiance reaffirmed. Those are the three things we learn in this whole chapter. Carol did a great job reading. It's a long reading, isn't it? All right, covenant questioned, covenant's allegiance is tested, and covenant allegiance reaffirmed. David says to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And notice that Jonathan is still kind of clueless. He says, verse 2, it's not so. He's not going to kill you, because if he would have, he would have told me. He tells me everything. And David desires that Jonathan wake up and smell the coffee because Jonathan doesn't quite understand the reality of the situation, saying, and David argues with him. That's what's going on here. No, Jonathan, there's a spear stuck in your family room wall if you want any any evidence of this. The problem is he is trying to kill me. And by the way, I'm not going back to your father. Before I go back, you can kill me. Go ahead. Verse 8, kill me yourself, he says. So the covenant that David and Jonathan have made in previous chapters, when Jonathan took off his armor and made a promise to God that he would recognize David as king, is now being questioned by David, naturally. Because who's the enemy now? Jonathan's father, Saul. And so in verse 16, the covenant's question is being confirmed. It's being, David, Jonathan's trying to reaffirm him in this. 
David doesn't get it yet. There's got to be some hard proof here. But Jonathan says, and Jonathan made a covenant, verse 16, with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Don't just read over that. Jonathan makes a covenant. A covenant is a binding promise with blessings for walking within the parameters of that covenant and consequences with spirit of a spiritual nature, especially for disobeying that covenant. And he says, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Who did he just say that the Lord should take vengeance on? His father. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. Notice, Jonathan's begging David to swear again by his love for him. This is a, an intense, passionate friendship phileo love. This is that band of brothers love. We've been through a lot together, man. You know, swear. You know, I'm with you if you're with me. And so David is questioning Jonathan's commitment and Jonathan begins to walk it, but you know what? Talk is cheap, right? And the reality is it's a perfectly normal experience for us in the church as we make a covenant with the Lord to walk with the Lord and with one another to have similar doubts and questions not only of the Lord but of one another making sure we're walking with the Lord together and to hold one another counsel uh, accountable for living out that profession of faith within the community. That's foreign to the American church. It's not foreign to the worldwide church. All right? The idea that what we profess with our lips affects one another. It's been five years since we've walked away from our previous building, and we're still standing. We've had to go to three services because the Lord is doing a good work among us here. And the reality is, when you look at the reality of the Lord, there's always a time in our walk with the Lord and with one another that you have doubts and questions and, you know, do I have this right? Have I made this all up? And like Billy Graham would always say to the, his family and his friends, if you have a problem with Jesus, take it to Jesus. And so we run back to the word as a learning community. But the problem with a typical American person that lives in our culture, you have the doubters and skeptics over here. And who do they hang out with? The doubters and the skeptics. And you have the believers over here. And who do they hang out with? Just the believers. So you have the doubters over here expressing their doubts and the believers over here expressing their faith. And they don't ever come together. But the reality is every single one of us has doubts at time. And this is a place where you can bring your questions in community as we do life together. And the reality is we become a learning community as we do so. And that's what Christ Church is and will continue to be. Because what we see is the covenant is questioned and we're a place where questions are welcome. Next, we see the covenant allegiance is tested. And so Jonathan concocts a plan because he knows his words are cheap to David. After all, the spear wasn't thrown at him, right? You know, and he's never seen his father. He's seen his father get moody. 
but he hasn't seen his father do this. And so, he concocts a, a plan that he'll get a boy, come out with him. David can hide behind a stone heap. And while he's hiding, once he learns the true plans of his father, because David's not coming to the new moon feast, which they would every, at the beginning of every month. When there's a new moon, they would celebrate that by a couple days feast for dinner. And David wasn't going to come for obvious reasons. And so he would test to see. And if it was dangerous for David, he would, have, he would shoot the arrows. He would tell the boy, and David would hear him say, go over to the right. There's some arrows over to the right. But if it's dangerous for David to come back, he'll tell the boy, keep going. There's some more arrows further. And so this is a plan to clearly show to David the safest path forward. It's an honorable plan. It's a good plan to help David get the right information so he can walk with the Lord and into his own kingship that God has called him to. And the kingdom allegiance here is now being tested for them. And our kingdom allegiance will be tested simply as we walk from here today. Wherever we go, if we're walking as disciples of the living God, someone might cock their head and wonder why you believe what you believe. If your life's never prompting questions, dear friends, is that perhaps a half-hearted devotion to the Lord? We need to be a people that, as we live our lives, we gossip the gospel, we talk about it, we live into this community, because we're not just to come on Sundays and go home and say, well, that's it for the week. And as we do so, our lives will be tested where we live and where we work and where we play. We will be questioned about what we believe and why. And it will reveal whether it's a true reality in our lives. That's why gathering together on the Lord's Day is so important. And that's why it's so important that we do so not just on Sundays, but sometimes throughout the week in a variety of small group settings. Choose one. We got them. There's all kinds of things, but it's not just gathering together. It's also doing life together. You know, my, my grandparents lived in a day where the Bible was respected, but it wasn't heeded. Don't talk to me about the good old days. They weren't. They weren't good. Today's the good old days. Right now. Okay? And the question is, I'm praying that the Lord ushers in a revival in our culture that the word is both respected and heeded. Because if it was heeded, my mom and dad would have been Christians. You know? And they weren't until later in life. And I know that's many of your stories as well. You know, we, we wish the good old days to come back. I don't. I don't at all. Because I'm called to live now, and so are you. Yes, there were some things that were better. I get it. We don't live there anymore. We're called to live today and to shine as a light into today. How exciting this is. This is a good time. And the reality is we're called to get equipped and use the natural bridges that we already have where we live, where we work, where we play to shine the light into the world. And the reality is our arrows to reveal that test is God's word itself. Let's live into that. 
And so therefore, finally, after we recognize that the covenant is questioned and the covenant allegiance is tested, we see in this text that our covenant allegiance is reaffirmed. Because as Jonathan said to David, and, and what happens in this whole plan, David doesn't show up at the, at the feast. And so what does Saul do? Verse 30 then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a... That's what it is in the Hebrew, by the way. ESV translated perverse, rebellious woman. That's very kind. All right? Do I, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul and his father, saying type of questions, what has he done? You know, why should he be put to death? Verse 32, here's the key. But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. Can you imagine trying to kill your own son? So Jonathan, verse 34, rose from the table in a fierce anger. That Hebrew word is... He is ticked. He's controlled. It's not an out of, out of control rage. He is like, oh no, oh no, not this. And so he immediately runs to David and carries out the plan, bringing the boy. And then we see the allegiance of the covenant. Because David is sitting out by the stone heap. I want you to think about that. He's out by the stone heap. There's no watches. There's no cell phones with a clock on it. He's just waiting, watching the sun go down. And he doesn't really know. I mean, they've made a covenant. Hopefully, Jonathan will live into the covenant. I think he was trusting the Lord in the covenant. But it was being tested. And for all he knew, Jonathan could have gone and gotten Saul's army and his soldiers and come capture David. But here comes Jonathan and the boy. And he shoots the arrows and carries out the plan. And in verse 42, then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Don't miss the beauty here. It's Jonathan said to David, you go in peace because we've sworn both of us in the name of the Lord. And notice before that in verse 41, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed to Jonathan three times. This is the king bowing to his subject in gratitude for being loyal, for being loving, being your friend because David needs a friend right now. Jonathan's his only friend. And they parted. And notice where they went. <laughs> David goes out into the wilderness. Jonathan goes back into the city. Uh, Dad had just tried to pin him against the wall. Yet he goes back. And Jonathan had chosen to recognize David as the king while in his father's house. And it will affect his relationships. It will affect them. 
Jonathan's identity, however, is in the Lord. Because when the covenant is reaffirmed, your identity is in the Lord. Not in my identity as a son or a daughter, humanly, but I'm a son or a daughter of the king, the true king. As he recognizes that David is the king. And even though he's living with his father, he recognizes his father is bound and determined to kill David. Jonathan will be loyal to David. And whenever we place our trust in Jesus Christ and we follow him because he is the true David. Second Samuel, if you keep reading the book, because first and second Samuel are meant to be read together. Get to chapter seven of Second Samuel, there will always be a throne on the house of David. And that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And whenever we place our trust in Jesus Christ and follow him, there will be those in our lives who just won't understand. They just won't see it. And Jesus said that in the gospel reading that Bob read this morning, that it will divide husband and wife, father, mother, brother and sister, employer, employee. And that's normal. To follow Jesus Christ as we do so, we recognize his great love for us upon the cross because he lived the life we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died. And when you gaze upon the cross and look at his love for you, he adores you and is so grateful for you that he would do that. That changes things. That changes me. That re- I, I, I take on new priorities in life. I can't stay the way I am because my identity is no longer in fill in the blank. Your identity is not on being a great employee. Your identity is not in what the culture says means to be a good parent. You're not in what our culture says is a good wife or a good husband. It's what our Lord says or all those things. It's out of that identity in Jesus Christ I live. Because all those other ways are unsatisfying, false glories. They feel good for a moment, but they don't last. For example, your work. What's your work ethic? Is it to advance the idea of what's in it for me? You know, to go as far as I can possibly go? Well, that's an idol of our expressive individualistic culture. And it's definitely not of God. And eventually it'll crush you. And it's such a lonely place to be. Or is my, uh, do I approach my work tomorrow as I go back and say, I'm going to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm going to love my coworkers and my clients and my students if I'm a teacher, wherever it is, with all my heart. If that's your primary choice, you've prioritized, reprioritized your life according to the gospel of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's not just where you work. It's where you live in your neighborhood and where you hang out and play. And when you're in a relationship with the Lord, with the one whom you adore because he first adored you and loves you to the cross, through his saving love, that gives you a stable new identity that will never let you down, never fail you, and fully satisfies. So, so, So how do you know you have it? How do you know you have it? It's been six months of Pentecost now. I think we'd have this by now. How do we know we have it? Well, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, 
to love one another as I have loved you. You know when you start loving one another within the church, you know, people that you don't have anything in common with. You know, I was speaking the other day to another Christian who's a huge Browns fan. I'm like, they're 0-10. Would you stop talking about the Browns? They stink. You know, we won the NBA championship. Talk about the Cavs. We almost won the World Series. Talk about the tribe. This guy just loves the Browns. But he loves Jesus. And I love hanging around him. That's what happens. You all of a sudden find yourself loving be around people just because they love Jesus with you. You see, if it bothers you, if Sundays is just come and go, if you never get beyond this physical space, that's not a Christian profession. That's just doing church. I don't know about you, I don't want to do church. We want to learn for five years what it means to be the church, right? Because it's not church, it's not a building. I've been saying that. And if you have Jesus Christ, you have an absolute solid identity you can never lose. Because what you've been looking for in your career or in your parenting, you'll never get what you will get in Jesus Christ as an identity you can never lose. So, adults, parents, I want to encourage you, don't let the culture dictate what it means to be a good parent. Grandparents, don't let the culture tell you what you need to do to be a good grandparent. What our grandkids need is your wisdom in Jesus Christ. What our kids need from us as parents is our wisdom in Jesus Christ. And that we raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord more than soccer and hockey and volleyball and everything else those coaches say you have to do in order to get a scholarship. You're not getting a scholarship. You're not that good. You're not. Just ask me to come to your games. I will be honest with you because I lived in that world for almost all my life up until 20 years ago. I can tell talent. I'll be glad to tell you and I'll be honest with you. You might be a good D3, but guess what? D3 doesn't hand out athletic scholarships, so you better get good grades, all right, if you love sports that much. And that's hard because when you go to D3, you're not getting paid for being an athlete like those D1 guys are. Their school's all paid for. Their food's all paid for. They better be there. They got coaches hanging over them. Those D3 coaches don't care. They're just glad you're on the team. My friends... We, we, we let the culture import into our lives what's important. Let's, let's, let's watch that. Secondly, you older folks, you retirees, oh, we need you. There's wisdom in those gray hairs, because I'm getting them. And it's falling out, too. Um, there's wisdom that you guys have as you have grown in the Lord and walked in the Lord with us. We need not only your prayers, we need your wisdom. So if you're not in a group, come get in a group. We got a Wednesday group of retirees that just meet and gather. We, we have a service together. Then we discuss the gospel. Then we all go out to lunch. And then we're looking at bridging ministries and all types of things. 
Because, you know, even though this is the end of Pentecost, the major holiday that the world still wants in is only four and a half weeks away. The world still wants in on Christmas. And we do Christmas at Christ Church. And my encouragement to all of us is, don't let the world identify you. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. So it's, it's time to choose. It's time to choose. The world offers you a blue pill. And you can take it, and everything will be fine, dandy, you know, for the rest of your life. You'll be happy, sure. God offers you the cross in Jesus Christ. And that's where the abundant life that you're looking for will truly be found. Because that's the story that's being written at Christ Church. We're a people. I want you to imagine that we're in the community where there is poverty and suffering and greed and pride and there's broken families and broken homes that pervade our community. And Jesus speaks into that darkness and says, I have come to give you life and you can have it to the full. God's writing a story here among us at Christ Church where he's gathering us as a people that are committed to more than just coming to church. But instead, being the church across the West Shore. To not just gather together on Sunday morning, but to scatter as the church throughout the rest of the week. I want you to imagine a church where it isn't primarily a place with programs, but a people with a purpose to be lived out in their giftedness for the truth and the reality of the gospel in our culture. That's who we're becoming by the grace of God and for the glory of God. Time to choose. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word, and we thank you that you're the one who comes to us, offering us such a choice, and all you offer us is the truth. For Jesus, you said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through you, and it's through your revelation we can know the abundant life that you offer us. Lord, I pray that as we close up Pentecost and declare you are the king of the world and the universe, and look forward to Advent. I pray, Lord, that this would go deeper into each and every one of our hearts this day. And if there's anyone here who has never turned their lives fully over to you, or they're half-hearted in their devotion, they would turn it all over to you. And Lord, that you'd be glorified in us as a people as never before. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.